sitting in a Buddhist temple in Ho Chi Minh City, wearing a periwinkle robe. It's so large, it masks any indication that I have a shape underneath. The locals are wearing matching attire. I'm in this expansive room with only three walls and a high ceiling. The fourth one is completely open to the outside. Earthy incense perfume the room. At the front sits a giant golden Buddha, stoically taking up a quarter of the space. It's surrounded by strands of marigolds, chrysanthemums, baskets of citrus. For a religion that's based off of simplicity, this is certainly ostentatious. I'm the only blonde person in a sea of 200 black-haired people. Some of them turn back and look at me, and then whisper to each other. Those that feel more confident with their English approach me. Hi, I'm Koa Ung, he says quickly, or maybe slowly. I have no idea. I struggle to say hello and make my tongue and mouth mimic what I just heard and, and try to agree with each other, but just some noise comes out of my mouth, like as if I was a toddler trying to speak Vietnamese. Probably worse, to be honest. I just smile awkwardly instead. He laughs at this silly white girl. She's trying. That's cute. And he says, well, what's your name? Adrian, I say. And he looks at me bemused like he couldn't possibly make those same noises. Like it was a foreign tongue to him. You can just call me A, I say. A, he says with a diphthong and continues to bend this singular vowel with the phonology of his mother tongue. Have you ever meditated before? Thinking, surely this white girl doesn't have the mental fortitude to do what we do. I explained to him that I've actually been meditating for 10 years, but he kind of disregards it and continues to instruct me. It's fine. I would rather hear how they do it and follow his lead. I am in his country. A bell rings and the room starts to organize itself. Everyone breaks up from their whispered conversations and finds a nearby seat. I sit on a lavender pillow and try to sit up straight. My knees are inches away from my neighbor's folded legs. I feel the slight body heat radiate from them, even though it's so humid in Ho Chi Minh City. I close my eyes. Then the chanting begins. The leader at the front starts to hum. Bells ring, more incense are lit. I inhale. We stand, chant, we sit, chant. My friendly neighbor is constantly side-eyeing me, guiding when to sit down, when to kneel, and don't put my book on the floor because that is sacrosanct. It's like having the American flag touch the ground. The room of 200 people begins to croon and chant in unison, and my feelings about Asia begin to settle like dust. I had been traveling so fast throughout Thailand and Vietnam for the past few weeks. Next stop, Singapore. I rarely had time to pause and think. This was my first time in Asia, and although I was an experienced traveler, this side of the planet was endlessly perplexing to me. It was twisting everything I knew about the world. Hell, Asia is its own world. Everything was different. The goose honking of tuk-tuks, the fishy smells, the speed of motorbikes, the toilets, how sidewalks were often turned into streets or outdoor restaurants, the heat, and the flowers. They even rested their bodies differently, perched low to the ground like a bird balancing on an electric wire. My mind was imploding on how this world worked. 
I mean, I had traveled significantly before, but in comparison, Europe and Asia seemed so much more familiar. Asia was like walking through a Twilight Zone episode. But what was most eye-opening to me was how frustrated I felt. Maybe it was the humidity or the fact that just crossing the street was a new game, with all the motorbikes buzzing past me. Sometimes I felt like I needed a helmet to get to the other side. And I started to notice how attached I was to how things happened in the West. I mean, I knew it was going to be different, but Asia was stripping me from everything I knew to be familiar and expected me to still dance to it. I didn't get it. It was like I was trying to complete a puzzle, saw the box, but was missing most of the centerpieces. And I noticed some of my sour knee-jerk reactions when I experienced something new. I would mindlessly say, that's so weird, when a local would explain a custom to me. And after a few times, I realized how insensitive that was. It wasn't weird to them. That was their normal. I was the weirdo. As I sat and began to hear the hums and concordant breaths in the room, I started to separate myself from my way of life, practice letting go of my worldview. But I think my largest jungle at that point was the language barrier. It seemed larger than the Great Wall of China. I love, thrive off of talking to locals and strangers. You are listening to the result of that passion. I don't know what I would give up in order to speak effortlessly to anyone in the world, but you can make me an offer. Nothing enriches my travels like chats with vendors, baristas, and taxicab drivers. It gives me a sense of connection I need as a human. I want to be able to make everyone smile in a different country, even if they're laughing at this wacky white woman. Wherever I go, I always try to learn bits and pieces of the language. Hello, thank you, cool, do you speak English? Which I can say in five languages. And I feel like I learn them relatively quickly because I really want to learn them. But in Asia, I felt cut off from that lifeline. But these Asian languages were impossible. I would listen hard to the locals and try to curl my tongue and mouth to match the same sounds that they were making. And I tried so hard, I tried so hard. All I wanted to do was say hello, and it just sounded like I was speaking with water in my mouth. Most days I realized I hadn't actually spoken to anyone. I would have a million conversations, but only with myself. Why couldn't I get these damn languages? I was so annoyed at this invisible border. I inhale a breath of citrus and incense and listen to the locals chant around me. They make noises that I could never make with my own mouth. In a moment, I'm astonished by the variety of noises that humans can make, and I'm curious as to why their language and English sound so different. Both are an amalgamation of sounds that are structured to convey meaning, but their vibrations have no significance to me. Only noise. It was my ego that was confused, frustrated, tenaciously stuck in its idea of how the world sounds. It was causing its own suffering with my attachment to a limited perspective as if my lifestyle was the only valid one. I inhaled another breath, deeper this time, down into my diaphragm and tried to chip away at my ego. Tried to envision my life on this side of the planet. How would I see the globe, humans, or my purpose differently? I began to submit to my ignorance. Travel often eradicates our egos in different ways through meditation, drugs, walking, being in nature. 
But how can we be honest about our growth without all of the eat, pray, love judgments? On today's episode, we're humbled. We will talk to travelers who feel deep spiritual shifts as they explore our tangible planet. We will talk to travelers who have had consciousness risings, shed old versions of themselves, and reached for a truer, higher self. I'm Adrian Bain. And this is Strangers Abroad. Here we go. Some of us use travel as a way to escape the growth we are desperately in need of. Home can be too triggering, too tempting, too provoking. Maybe my fears, anxieties, and pains will stay overseas if I fly far away from it. That's what Richard Cardillo, a New York City storyteller, believed when he got dispatched on a missionary expedition to Peru. Most of us were raised with a clear spiritual path. Organized religion has dominated our collective spiritual journeys, but they've also dictated what is and isn't acceptable. Richard always knew he was gay, but threw himself into the organization that vocally denied his true self. And he did believe that the monastic life was the right path. So if I go back to the beginning of this story, When I was 16 years old, I knew damn well that I was gay, but I was from such a really, really religious family, so super Catholic. I had eight brothers and sisters, so it was this large family of nine, and I knew that there was something wrong with me, and that's all I could think of. There was something wrong that I might grow out of. I had no gay role models. This was when I graduated. I graduated high school in 1976, and I knew that I had to fake it till I could make it as a straight man. In my heart of hearts though, I knew that I could never marry a woman and have children, even though I I had a desire to have children, but I just thought that was an impossibility. You could never do it because you were a gay man. So I said, I'll give that up and I cannot marry a woman, but if I stayed single for too long, it would kind of show what that meant, that I was a gay man. So I went the next best route and decided to join a monastery. I I joke about that with lines, you know, that at the age of 16, I made this profound decision to give my life to Jesus because doesn't every 16 year old know what they want to do with their penis for the rest of their lives? I mean, that's, that's kind of what I was thinking that I could just hide it and repress it all. And I did for many years. People usually ask me, weren't you jerking off? So the answer to both those questions was yes. And the answer to both those questions was a lot. So, yes, I mean, but that was all, I don't even know what I fantasized about at the time, to tell you the truth. I had never, you know, experienced the flesh of another person, so I didn't really know, you know, what I was masturbating to. I didn't know what pornography was at the I mean, I knew what it was, but it just never was something that I would pursue, so there was nothing involved with that. More of the time, it was up until my mid-20s, 
having the feeling most adolescent boys talk about when they first start, you know, with their experiences of masturbation as early kids, this sense of guilt that came over them for doing this thing that was probably so wrong and so dirty and this feeling of guilt. And that stayed with me until my mid twenties and probably was the single largest reason for spending thousands in therapy later on in my life to get the fuck over that. (laughs) Once I made the decision to join, I threw myself in to the point where, I mean, I want to be honest. I was convinced that Jesus was the answer, that I could give my life to others. Two things that came from that. Number one is I believed it. 100%. And I lived it 100% and felt good about it. 88 to 89%. I felt that. But number two, I knew that the things I was learning was valuable, whether they were spiritual, about human life, about human nature. I knew that my life was changing as a result of the way that I was living it. And I do have to say this, as much as I make fun of religious life, and I, I don't think it's a cool life for many people, although I lived with some people that, you know, celibacy and living a vowed life is exactly where they should have been. And that was, you know, their calling in life. I don't know if it was a calling for me. It was more of an escape. However, I had the luxury of not getting involved with relationships so that I could be of more service to others. So there was kind of this wall. And it's funny, when you take the vow of poverty, they say, when you don't get a paycheck on your own. You could be more rich for other people. And for the vow of obedience, I said, when you listen to your superiors and go where they tell you to go, you have more free will. Uh, In some ways that's bullshit. But with the vow of celibacy, what they say is, because you're not putting so much of your energies into developing particular relationships and intimate relationships with other human beings, i.e. a man for a woman and a woman for a man, that's all that was allowed. Um, you're more free to love others. I believe that with all my heart. I still do believe it. I think that that time for me, I was doing what I should have been doing, was I knew these gay feelings weren't going away. And I was so afraid of temptation in New York that I asked my superiors to send me far away with very hard work. And that's when I was surprised when they sent me to Peru. But when we travel, our problems don't stay at home. They zip themselves into our carry-on and travel with us. Often the problems we're trying to avoid become even more heightened and unavoidable in spite of trying to escape them. What is being suppressed always submerges. However, I really did grow up when I was in Peru. I was this privileged white kid who even though went through all of this training, was not ready for what I found when I went to Peru. I was cast to working in villages and towns that were the poorest of the poor. People used to call Lima in the 80s the Calcutta of Latin America. It was just so bad. There was hyperinflation, so money meant nothing. People only bartered there. There was no sanitation for anybody in the practically the entire city. Only one out of every eight people had running water in their homes. Crime was rampant. And the worst of it all is there was a terrorist group who were strict Maoists who were determined to overthrow the government. They went by the name The Shining Path, Sendero Luminoso. So one of my roles was to protect the people 
who were escaping from the provinces where Sendero Luminoso was at their worst. So I found myself working amongst these people and I was cast in the role by them of almost like a savior. I would walk into some of these villages and the first thing old ladies would do would be kiss my hands. And I would want to say to them, dears, you don't know what I'm doing with these hands at night. You should not be kissing them at all. And I felt shame in, in, in many different ways. However, I really learned about community, camaraderie. I don't know how much of it had a religious or spiritual bent. It was always in that guise. But for me, I did find God amongst the people. I found my spirituality from looking at how these people were survivors. One little vignette that I do remember is one of my first days in my new village of working. One family who I was going to be staying with asked me to have a dinner in my honor with the rest of the village. And they were, they, they had, they were dirt poor. I mean, they had soup every night and that's it. She would make her own little tortillas every morning, but nothing else for this family. They made such a feast with chicken and lamb they had for us that day. And one of the delicacies for them was to make this real strong soup called a caldo, C-A-L-D-O. And inside that caldo for the guest of honor, they put the claw of the chicken to flavor it. And the guest would take the claw out and suck out the marrow from the claw. And I looked at it and I just couldn't do it. I didn't know at the time that I was insulting them by doing that. They had probably killed their only chicken for me. So that was an idea of how giving these people were. I eventually made the decision that this just was not working for me. And it was going to pain me to leave the work with these wonderful people. I had learned so much about myself, but I knew I was living a double life. I had finally accepted inside myself that I was gay and while I was celibate, I mean, I have no reason to lie about it now, I was celibate for, up to that point, practically 14 years. I was 28 years old. Although Richard came to Peru to avoid his issues, he ended up expediting them instead. He realized that although he had missed out on some major sexual and romantic experiences, it might have saved his life. But my travel on foreign soil, my walking the ground of another culture, expedited everything. And when I think of the contrasts that were there, I was in a country that was just so downtrodden, in addition to being so macho and so repressed. I mean, homosexuality was still illegal in Peru when I was there. You could not be openly gay on the streets at all. So here I was trying to find out how to discover myself. And blessed hindsight, I know my travel to that country was it gave me this very special, unique perspective on what my life was going to become. After 14 years of my life, I could no longer be a religious monk. And I know that made me stronger and more fierce and fed my advocacy and my protest roots like that they would not have been fed if I didn't have those experiences. What did happen, though, was I made this decision to leave the monastery and not come back to the United States of America, where there was, this was 1984, an openly gay life. Two things came to mind when I realized that. Number one, I was aware of it, but not super aware at the time, that I was a celibate man in the midst 
of a global AIDS epidemic that was killing gay men. And I know the only reason I stayed alive was because I was celibate through this epidemic. That's what kept me alive. So there was this weight of survivor guilt that stayed with me throughout this whole process. Being celibate wasn't a waste of time. It actually might have saved his. And he's taken the lessons that he learned from those 14 years and fuels it into his teachings, his daily teachings and activism. Everyone has a different path, and he learned to accept his and respect others, which starts with listening. When I think of the travel that I've done and the people that I've met from Peru, that set me on a path when I came back to this country to, number one, simply listen to people. Number two, accept people where they are. And that's been really important. I think what's fed my resistance to this current regime we have in our country right now with you know Trump mania and all, I think what's allowed me to survive was that skill of listening. And as painful as it is to listen to a Trump supporter, the first thing that I do is find out why they're a Trump supporter before I say, you're wrong. I'll eventually get to the point of you're wrong. I know that, but I won't lead with that. And I think all of that had its roots in my life in Peru, in my travel to Peru. Have very few regrets about it right now. I mean, the biggest regret, I, I know, I mean, I turned 60 this year. And the biggest regret is that I didn't have more sex in my life. So I'm, I'm trying my hardest to make up for it now. So... <laughs> Although being in the monastery probably saved his life, Richard is now happily skipping along a new holy path of sexual awakening. Sometimes we need to shed a layer of ourselves, like snakeskin. And traveling through nature can uproot many of the habits that are implanted in our daily routine. It strips us of our normal environment, one filled with temptation, and helps us see ourselves more clearly. Many of us go out of our way to have that exposing experience, to feel the sun on our skin, dirt under our shoes. It helps us feel connected to our ancestors the ones whose backs were bent over harvesting seeds and berries instead of over a computer. We still need that. To be surrounded by trees, push our bodies up mountains, and dive into water. These experiences are what Gail Straub has spent the past few years documenting. She's a podcast and a book called She Explores, which shares stories of women out in the wild. Nature has been a great influence for these women's sense of direction in life and on the trail. I started by asking where her relationship began with the great outdoors. My my dad grew up with a love of nature and farming and agriculture, so he wanted to live in New Hampshire, even though he was a you know manufacturing engineer in his spare time. Um, we had sheep and chickens and pigs and a full veggie garden. And we didn't have like a lot of land. Like I think we had two, my parents still live in the same 200 year old house that I grew up in, but we had like two and a half acres, but there were lots of trails going from our house because there were snowmobile trails and old, you know, class three roads and 
my parents gave us the freedom to kind of explore beyond our backyard. Uh, so I, I think my connection with nature really started before I can remember just because of how much time we spent outside as kids and, and got to interact with the, you know, the landscape in New Hampshire. When Gail was older, working in an office job, she realized that her connection to nature was dwindling. Her investment in She Explores reinvigorated her love for nature, but also allowed her to connect with women who found a spiritual need to be outside. Historically, the feminine is tied to nature. We literally call it a mother. But because of the powers that women have, our ability to menstruate, give birth, and feed children, our narrative has always been intertwined with nature. We're seen to be ruled by our bodies more than our minds, thought to be messy, chaotic, unruly. And the stereotype today is a woman with long hair and a flower print skirt and top, wearing Birkenstocks and holding a crystal while walking in a stream. I asked Gail if She Explores has expanded the stories around the female experience in nature. I think that it's, you know, every person who I talk to is different, obviously. And that's something I'm really intentional about, trying to have a diverse range of voices in terms of like backgrounds and experience levels and, you know, even recognizability. Like I really like featuring people who don't have like a million followers on Instagram because I don't think that matters. But I think that a commonality that I've found between the women is that they are looking for time that's their own. And they're looking to be able to hear the voices in the voice inside their head. They're looking to feel calm in nature. They're looking to like feel like themselves, you know, like it's so easy to feel distracted in everyday life and it can feel like you're going through the motions or that there isn't time for you. And I think that that's a common theme that I've heard from women. I think that some of the the stereotype of, there's like a bit of like a trope with women in the outdoors of being healed or kind of going in with the trauma and being healed through the outdoors. And I think that's really started with I don't know if it started with it, but I think it was perpetuated by Cheryl Strayed's Wild, which is a fantastic book and I love it. But I think that it has created a bit of a narrative that it feels like we need to be broken to go into the outdoors. And I don't think that that's true. I think that it is valid to feel that way and to to, to find healing there. But I don't think that that's the only story that there is for women. And I've heard, I've heard over, you know, I've, I've interviewed several women who have done long through hikes or, you know, really immerse themselves for long periods of time um, in a way that kind of changes their life. But there is this return, you know, there is a return to your, even if you change your life after that, like you are still yourself. And in some ways, nature can be a distraction too, um, if you're looking to kind of solve something or run away from something. So you know, there is this very real post-trail depression that can happen for people who have through-hiked. And yeah, I just, I just don't think it's good to perpetuate any any narrative that's a little too fantastical or um, <laughs> is any panacea because it's not constructive over oh. a long period of time. <laughs> I'd never heard of the post-trail blues, but I can assume it's something similar to reverse culture shock. After being submerged in a different culture for so long, 
returning home can be more startling than leaving it. I asked her to unpack this phenomenon. I, I can't speak to it personally, but I've heard poster hill blues. I think that's an expression that's used. If you plan and do like a three-month hike, like you do the PCT and you you accomplish your goal, like not everyone does, but say you accomplish it, you've spent probably six months planning for it and then three months doing it and you have to save up to do it. You're not working at that period of time. You know, it's a real big privilege to do something like that too. You might come back to similar circumstances or you might have like had a relationship on the trail that didn't <laughs> work out because you're not in that same point of life as you are on the trail. It's like this almost like an alternative reality from what I've heard from others. So, it, and it's also like, I've also heard, and I'm like, like I said, I'm not talking with my own specific experience. So um, take it with a big grain of salt, but that you have certain endorphins that you get every day while you're hiking and you don't get those when you come back to the city or whatever your everyday life was, because you're not going to hike 25 miles, you know, like the, you just don't have time for that in your everyday life. So yeah, the, that kind of extreme way of living isn't necessarily sustainable. So it can lead to some depression after. For, for some people, I'm, I'm sure it's not the case for everyone. Our lives seem to be constructed to avoid the unruliness of nature. It's easier to stare at Yosemite as a desktop background than to actually go out and visit it. We choose comfort over challenge. I asked her why we don't do it more often. It's really good to do hard things. And we aren't always challenged to do that in our everyday life. And I know often if I see just personally, I'll see, hey, I could go and go for a 20 minute walk on my, you know, quote unquote lunch break, or I could watch like an episode of something on Netflix. And I often take like the easier of the two choices, even though the walk isn't like a hard choice either. But just thinking about how constructive it can be to challenge ourselves to not take the easiest path possible. And when you choose to go out on just a hike for a day, you're, you're challenging yourself in a physical way the whole entire day. And that does carry over into at least the next couple days, I find. But nature is wired into us and helps us stay sane. When I was tutoring, I was on the verge of burnout. I was overworked, driving on highways, and would get home close to 11 o'clock at night. Somehow Spotify had an inkling that I was in need of some nature, and one night I clicked on a Nature Sounds playlist and played songs that was like birds in a forest or something. The moment I heard twittering, I felt my heart rate drop. I was calm and was able to just breathe. The physical and psychological effects of hearing nature sounds was enough to put me into a deep sleep. Nature is tied to our sanity and sense of health. It will make you feel better, but it won't solve all your problems. I think because it it does <laughs> in certain ways, you know, like it does make you feel better. I know that I'm a very anxious person. You know, like we talk about like easy versus hard. It's harder to give myself the time to like maybe write in a journal and, and express myself like as me. And the times that I do go out for backpacking trips, like it is relaxing. It's, it is freeing to not have 
access to technology or the to-do list or, you know, if you're a driven person, the things that you want to get done, it feels really good and that can be healing. And I think that people want to find some kind of peace when they're going through harder times in their life. Like I've heard from lots of people who have, you know, had a big bad divorce or experiencing, they're experiencing grief and they want some respite from that. And I think the nature, the nature can add, provide respite, but it doesn't necessarily mean it's going to fix, fix you though. So yeah, I guess it's, it's tempting to, to look for that when you're going through hard times. Uh, I did have someone in, we have like a Facebook group for the podcast and she shared how um, when her mother passed away, she went to Grand, the Grand Canyon uh, for this long backpacking trip, not too soon after it happened. And she said it was really, really helpful to work through her grief that way. But this was right when she got back and, and someone commented and said, yeah, I had a similar experience, but you know, keep in mind, it was a bit of a delayed, I ended up having some delayed grief. Like I still had to work through that. And this woman who went to the Grand Canyon responded later and said, yeah, yeah, you're, you were right. I did. It was a bit of a delay for me. And I, I did, I am feeling this very strongly right now, but I don't regret doing that. I asked her to tell me a time where she felt humbled by nature. An impactful moment for me was um, about a year ago and I was going on a, it was a four night, five day backpacking trip in the Sierra with uh, my good friend, Julie Hotz. And she organized, I think it was five other women. So seven women total um, were going on this backpacking trip and it wasn't overly ambitious. It was five days and we might have hiked 30 miles throughout five days. So it wasn't really strenuous. And we had one day that was totally off. Like you can sleep in, you can go do whatever you want. And she planned it around these alpine lakes that were around 10,000, 11,000 feet. And going up, it's certainly humbling to, to fly into Los Angeles at like nine o'clock the night before, wake up at 5 a.m., drive to, you know, the Bishop area of the Sierra in, in California and to, you know, be at around 8,000 feet there and then hike up to 10, 11,000 feet for the first place that you sleep and, you know, you have a headache and you're out of breath because you haven't acclimated. That's certainly humbling, but what set me into a bit of a panic was when I realized that I didn't bring anything to entertain myself. I didn't bring a Kindle. I didn't bring a book. I didn't bring, you know, I had my phone, but you know, you don't have cell phone service or anything when you're out there. And it was the first time I'd gone on a backpacking trip and I hadn't brought a Kindle or anything to kind of distract myself or, you know, keep myself company a little bit besides my thoughts and, and the nature around me. So when I realized that while we were hiking up, getting bitten by like a million mosquitoes, and I realized that I didn't have anything. And I was, I kind of had that like pit in the bottom of my feeling stomach, like, 
kid, I'm going to have to keep myself company. <laughs> like I'm, I'm in a tent by myself. I'm going to have to, to, to think I didn't even have like, like a piece of paper to write anything on. Like I was going to look at the side of my tent and that was a humbling feeling. Like when you hike all day, you're tired at night and you eat and then you just go to sleep. But the day that we had off, the third day was totally off. And I got into my tent at one point and just like ate some jelly beans for like 45 minutes and just like tasted every flavor of jelly bean. And I never would have done that at home. Like that was the kind of thing that I did as a kid. Like they were jelly belly, jelly beads, like all the different flavors. I was a big, I still have a sweet tooth, but I was a really big candy eater as a kid. And I just like savored every flavor. I ended up getting a stomach ache, but I don't know. It was, it was that remove from my everyday life and that remove from the technology and even the escape of like a novel, which I think reading is super constructive, but at times it is an escape from from being with myself, that feeling that I had before I did it was humbling. And then getting to move beyond it and work through it and enjoy it brought me closer to some type of more understanding of like my own nature, I guess. And ultimately ended up being very positive. And I think about that sometimes when I'm tempted to distract. I don't always succeed. I I still distract myself in ways that I'd prefer not to, but I'm maybe a teeny bit, infinitesimally bit more aware of it now. I thought it was interesting that what Gail thought was the most humbling thing about that story wasn't the breathtaking views or challenging her body. It was the lack of stimulation, her having to sit with her mind and not be dependent on things to entertain her. When we travel, We see what we're dependent on and what our real needs are. I honestly thought that moving to New York was going to make me more materialistic, but backpacking helped me adjust my consumer mindset. When I was on the road, if I liked an object, I thought, well, is it gonna be too heavy to carry? And if it was, I didn't get it. I do have a killer earring collection though, but I was able to see what my real needs were and what was worth bringing. And I started to think how people define themselves by the objects they have. They label themselves with the brands that they wear, the coffee shops they go to, the cars that they drive. But when all of that is stripped away, we see our true vulnerabilities and are defined more by our character than the things we own. Lisa also discovered what she was made of the first time she walked the Camino through Spain. El Camino is one of the most notorious pilgrimages in the world, with multiple paths. It can start in France, Switzerland, or Italy, but always ends in Spain. I asked her what the Camino is all about. You may not know you're a pilgrim until long after your experience, till long after your walk. Many people start uh, the Camino as either a vacationer or just out for a cheap vacation because it's, you know, it's very inexpensive once you're there. For Americans or Australians, there's the major cost of getting there, but the Camino is an international melting pot of different types of travelers and whether they use a lot of Germans and French and mostly Spanish 
So they're just kind of coming out their front door and having maybe a two-week walk and then they go back. Lots of Europeans do it in a couple-week stages. And then lots of school kids do it in Spain in the summer. So the idea of being a pilgrim may not come until you've completed the journey and have realized that you really had a, a different experience than you originally thought, that it was more spiritual or more internal communal than you realized you were going to have. Because you can't help but be affected by the people around you and the people that you stay with at night in, in an albergue and get involved in their lives despite language barriers. There are people I've seen in their 80s doing the Camino and, you know, everybody walks their own Camino. So they may or may not be necessarily carrying their own bag. They do what they need to do to make the journey. Many people walk the Camino in gratitude for surviving cancer. There are uh, veterans groups that walk the Camino dealing with PTSD and other types of disabilities from war. And there's families, but mostly that's a European kind of thing. I started a Facebook group called Camino Kids for people who want to walk with kids. And it's, it's a wonderful experience to share with kids for a lot of reasons. But then I've seen um, like Dutch families with kids on bikes and the kids are in little travel trailers and, and you know, little, little guys. And my friend Lydia Smith made a movie called Walking the Camino, Six Ways to Santiago. And in her movie, she follows a French woman who's pushing an infant in a stroller. So yeah, those are, those are the spectrum of ages, you know, late 80s to infants. Pilgrimages have been happening since we stood upright. Humans walked the continent of Africa and came up through what is now the Middle East to the edge of China. We headed north to modern Norway and east through France with nothing more than our feet. And pilgrimages have always been motivated by religious penance. Muslims journey to Mecca, Jews to Jerusalem, Buddhists will walk to Tibet, and Hindus migrate towards Varanasi. The Exodus is a time of reflection of where your life has taken you and where you want the journey to end. I asked Lisa why in this modern society people seem to still be drawn to the El Camino. Simplification is one big thing, I think. You know, why in this tumultuous world are people seeking pilgrimage by the literally hundreds of thousands? There's pilgrimage routes in Japan and in Bosnia and Serbia, and people are flocking to these places, people who don't profess to be of any one faith, but people are absolutely seeking and searching for some kind of answers for this this confusion. So spiritual travel sounds kind of oxymoronic, but it's not, not in these days. And drilling it down to the necessities, to what you can carry on your back, to what you really absolutely need. And when you leave home after your big REI shopping adventure, it doesn't mean that those are actually the things you need. People, you know, people jettison lots more than just extra clothes on the Camino. They jettison worries and they jettison anxieties and insecurities. So the things that you wind up carrying at the end 
are absolutely not the things you thought you were going to need on the way. But Lisa got rid of more than just her extra clothes and shoes. She jettisoned her expected future. I was turning 50 and felt like I needed some kind of monumental experience around that. Um, And the Camino really presented itself to me. And I took my son. And we started the Camino in France in Henday, and we did the northern route. But we did great until I got injured. And then we went back. We had to stop about three weeks in. And then we went back in 2016 to finish together. So he was 12 when we finished. And when I started the Camino process, I was married and selling real estate on Cape Cod. Now, having just finished my third Camino, I'm divorced. I have my own home, career changing, decided I was going to explore photography full time. And so and now my son's almost 15. So it, it has been a tremendously transitional process. Came back. My husband was supposed to join us for part of the walk. And it was never his idea. It was never his Camino. As much as he, you know, wanted to, to say, you know, I'm going to do this. He's, he is not spiritual. He's not religious. He's a couch potato. But he felt like he wanted to, to be on this adventure with my son and I, our son and I. And so it just, I don't think it was a coincidence that at the time that he was supposed to join us was when my knee gave out. So he never walked a step with us. So he didn't have the Camino experience, but we decided together that we were going to move to France and open a hostel for pilgrims. So we spent the next year in that process. We found a house. We bought the house. We were about to close on it. I got the permissions from the government of France to change this 900-year-old building into a hostel, got our, our work visas, our residency permits. We were ready to go. And he not only backed out of that process, he backed out of a 15-year marriage. So that's when my, my, my little boy says, it's okay, mom, the Camino's prepared us for this. So lost the house in France, but the Camino continues. Now I'm 54 and I'm, I'm, I'm completely living a different life. I asked her what messages did the Camino send her? I had gotten so much out of my Camino. And in one particular place that we stayed, my son and I in Guillemes, Padre Ernesto, he is a, he's a Catholic priest, but he lives on his family's property, which he's turned into a hostel for pilgrims. And he, it was such a profound experience just spending 24 hours, not even 24 hours with Padre Ernesto, And him talking about the Camino de la Vida, the Camino of life, that we're we're all on a continual journey, that we're not on a a finite trip. And it's it's a time when people are really seeking these types of experiences. I served as a volunteer, um, hospitalero, a hostess um, in a hostel that it's a donativo, you pay what you can or will. So I spent two weeks um, in August doing that um, in a very hot place on the Meseta in the middle of nowhere in El Borgo Ranero, Spain, being on the receiving end of other pilgrims' journey. And to me, that was an entirely different Camino. 
every day being responsible for 40 pilgrims and their feet and their woes and their loneliness and their trials and tribulations. And that's an entirely different experience, but it's another, it's another travel experience to be on that end of it for other travelers. So that's been part of my communal journey as well. And this whole continuation of taking your experiences with your travels and, and turning that into, you know, a life experience, not just a vacation experience. I was so profoundly affected by Father Ernesto that that's why I decided I wanted to give back to the Camino and become a, a hostess. So I went and trained for three days in California and that was my, my assignment. And I'll, I want to go back and do it again. I think that it's fascinating that she decided to bring her son on this journey with her. I asked Lisa what areas of growth her son went through while he was on the road with her. American kids are so plugged in and all of that. And in 2014, at least, it, it wasn't, I mean, the, the internet wasn't even as widespread as, as it is five years later. So he had to unplug and kind of tune in to what we were doing and in the beginning, he had just a little, you know, good old fashioned iPod that I had downloaded some books on tape. Well, yeah, I'm old books on tape, audiobooks. So he was listening to Treasure Island while we were walking. And then he lost his iPod somewhere along the way, which was like traumatic. But then he just kind of had to sing or talk to me or, you know, pay attention. And that in and of itself is, is tremendous for kids for today. Yeah, it's really affected his resilience. But if we don't give kids a chance to challenge themselves in that way, if we don't give them a chance to overcome difficulties, then you don't build that resilience. So that experience for him was also profound. And whenever we come up against a speed bump, he'll say, we got this, Mom, we're pilgrims. What is it about long walks that helps us find something deeper? Is it because it was our original form of traveling? That the only way to get somewhere by land was through our feet and a sturdy pair of leather shoes? Or maybe it's the meditation of it, the rhythmic walking, guiding you into a cerebral state. Your brain wanders aimlessly and the thoughts that you can ignore pop out of nowhere and you have the time to mull over them, hell, the whole day and the next day, and the next. I asked Lisa, after getting divorced, uprooting her life, and giving her son a -a one-of-a-kind experience, what was the biggest lesson El Camino taught her? Yeah, there are a few things, one one of which was that I could plan and plan and plan, and, and I was not in control. You know, once you're on the ground, you are no longer in control. You're not in control of the weather. You're not in control of other people. You're not in control of whether or not that cafe that the guidebook said was going to be open for breakfast is actually even there anymore. You have absolutely no control over those things. You don't control the people that you're going to end up with at the end of the day. They are going to be there and they are who they are. So all of those things are immediately out of your control. And the sooner you get a hold of that, the better off you are. So that's one thing that surprised me and that was a real growth point for me because I'm very type A. The the fun for travel for me is planning, planning, planning. And there's just no point. 
And I keep saying one of these days, I'm going to go on Camino with just my passport and my ATM card. And, and that is going to be a whole different ballgame. And I think I would have an amazing time. As humans walked farther away from our origins, we grew distant from what unites us. As our feet crossed over different land masses, we continued to evolve and grew distant from each other. Our diversity is what helped us reign over the planet, but it still divides us from each other. While sitting on that lavender pillow, feeling the humid air pass through my periwinkle robe, I tried to trace the language lines that have splintered all over the world, how language has fractaled itself, splitting off from one common word, lost to history. I thought it was so strange how this one tool that we all have to communicate also keeps us separate. According to scientists, the average human can make over 500 distinct sounds with vowels and consonants. If you include variations on pitch and volume, the number is infinite. We have a limitless communication tool resting right inside our throats. What a goddamn gift. Why did certain groups of sounds link up and create a language? Why do we have such variation and how did these sounds end up evolving? And language is an entire ecosystem of culture, perceptions, and understanding of how the world works. The way people see the world is different from my own based on the words that they use. What they value and prioritize is said differently, even if we experience the same thing. You can tell what a culture values by how many words or terms it has for a phenomenon. Americans have nearly a hundred ways of saying money. For the Eskimos, it's snow. I think of these unlimited perspectives as looking through a kaleidoscope. With each twist, you have the same shapes readjusted in a new form, sometimes slightly, sometimes completely. The world looks different depending on what language you're looking at it through. The grammar, syntax, vocabulary, and sounds that we're raised with influences how we interpret the greater globe. We think differently in other languages. We fight differently. We love differently. I mean, so then, who's, what does the world really look like if I'm only able to see it through the lens and limitation of my own language? I felt the edges of my ego start to crack. And I felt heavy. There are so many worlds I'll never be able to tap into. And there are thousands of people that I will walk by in my lifetime that I'll never be able to speak to. What a tragedy. Never hear their stories from their mouths or truly understand their pain. I felt so limited by my own body. I sat in this room and saw all of these beautiful people around me that I just didn't have access to. I felt isolated and tiny. What helps us communicate also keeps us silent and separate from each other. I wondered what we would say if we all understood one another. How people speak reflects how they see and organize the world. I surrendered my ideas of how life should be lived and started to see the cultures that I was walking through in such a richer light, that the world I'm a guest in is an extension of a collective cultural consciousness. I'm experiencing how other people believe the world should be organized, and it's no less valid than my own. 
The chances of me being Vietnamese were just as random as me being an American. I often feel overwhelmed when I'm exploring another culture because I see how many different lives I could have lived. Each time I visit a new town, state, or country, I'm walking through a parallel universe, an unlived life. When I watch the locals go about their day, in Korea, South Africa, or Australia, I couldn't help but think that this could have been me. As I contemplate it, the limitations of my language, a bell rings, and I'm brought back to the hums and vibrations of the room. The inhale, the exhale, a steady pace like walking a pilgrimage. This was the sound that we all understood. Everyone else sat stoically around me, just searching for peace. I inhaled the burning smell of sandalwood. I straightened my back and opened my hands. Regardless of language, I still felt linked. The more we travel, the more we can see if we're okay. The anxiety, the shortness of breath, straining to hear. We never know how our bodies are going to adapt to new territories or be able to question if home was a safe space to begin with. On our next episode, we're healed. Travel has a way of illuminating the scars we choose to ignore. Next time on Strangers Abroad.